Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Far From Over, The Costs and Consequences of War in Iraq. It's for the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 22, 2009. This week marks the sixth anniversary of the United States invasion and occupation of Iraq on March 19, 2003. President Obama has announced plans to bring home most of America's 142,000 troops by the year 2010, but even so, the war is far from over. Nor are the horrible costs and consequences of the war over. And whereas American officials who wage the war enjoy a culture of impunity, Ordinary citizens around the world suffer from their stupidity, incompetence, hubris, and dark impulses. This was a preemptive war of choice that did not have to happen. The successive rationales for the war that the American government gave to justify its actions have all proven to be false. Iraq did not possess weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein was not involved in the 9-11 attacks, and Iraq was not a base for al-Qaeda, although the war made it one. The agenda of a free democracy in Iraq, observes Peter Galbraith in his book Unintended Consequences, now has U.S. troops fighting for pro-Iranian Shiite theocrats alongside unreformed Ba'athists. The human costs of the war have been appalling death, mutilation, maiming, and injuries destroy not only bodies but also human hearts, minds, lives, and spirits. As of March 3, 2009, there were 4,572 coalition deaths in Iraq, 4,255 of whom were Americans. At least 31,089 Americans have been wounded in Iraq, and with the Walter Reed scandal, we now know just how badly our government failed these families. In Afghanistan, there have been 1,082 coalition deaths, 655 of whom were American. At least 2,701 personnel from America have been wounded in Afghanistan. The human devastation among Iraqis is far worse. The Iraq Body Count Project has documented a minimum of 90,000 civilian deaths in Iraq. Some studies estimate that figure at more than a million. Two million Iraqis have fled their country for Syria and Jordan, and another two million have been displaced from their homes inside the country. The army and police are highly sectarian. There are few mixed neighborhoods anymore. It's entirely possible that irreconcilable differences among Sunnis, Shiites, and Kurds will prevent anything like a unified state. Many experts believe these sects are merely biding their time until the next civil war. So far, the United States has spent or approved $800 billion for the Iraq War, 
The final cost will be far higher, as Joseph Stiglitz and Linda Bilm show in their book, The Three Trillion Dollar War. That $800 billion has not been paid either, but in effect charged to the credit cards of American children. What might the world look like today if the United States, in a preemptive and unilateral decision, purely from motives of self-interest and international security, had invested that $800 billion in the Muslim world for health care and hospitals, schools and electricity, micro-enterprise and cultural institutions, or spent the money on our own citizens to help those with no health insurance, to fund social security, develop new sources of renewable energy, invest in schools and education, or retrain workers displaced by a fiercely competitive global economy. In addition to the human and economic costs, the Iraq war has also cost dearly in numerous geopolitical ways. We've alienated ourselves from our friends, militarized international diplomacy, and enraged our enemies. Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, Haditha, renditions, no-bid reconstruction contracts, corruption, overpayments, and domestic wiretaps, all these have undermined the credibility of our government to human rights, rule of law, rule of law and democracy. The Iraq War has destabilized the greater Middle East region and supported the jihadist view of history that America wants to occupy, control, or destroy their countries. War critics have been harassed and caricatured as unpatriotic, and we've believed dangerous misconceptions about American exceptionalism. Whereas Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction, North Korea, Iran, and Pakistan have grown as genuine nuclear threats since we invaded Iraq. The attempt to marginalize Iran has made its influence in Iraq stronger than it has been in 400 years, says Peter Galbraith. Syria is now more bold not more threatened, and Israel is less rather than more secure. Turkey has been transformed from one of America's biggest supporters into a nation of virulent anti-Americanism. And the shock and awe of American superiority reveal gross failures of intelligence, planning, and politics. There's now a widespread consensus based upon the meticulous research of Philip Sands, the torture team, and Jane Mayer, the dark side, that the United States committed war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan when our highest officials legalized torture as public policy. According to Human Rights Watch, more than 600 U.S. military and civilian personnel were involved in abusing more than 460 detainees. What the public has seen and heard about Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib is only the tip of the iceberg. Major General Antonio Taguba, a 34-year military veteran before he was forced to retire, wrote the Army's 2004 internal report on detainee abuse at the Abu Ghraib prison. More recently, in June 2008, 
He wrote the preface to a report by Physicians for Human Rights on Prisoner Abuse and Torture at Abu Ghraib, in Guantanamo Bay, and in Afghanistan. Taguba accused the Bush administration of committing war crimes and called for the prosecution of those responsible. And I quote Taguba, After years of disclosures by government investigations, media accounts, and reports from human rights organizations, there is no longer any doubt as to whether the Bush administration has committed war crimes. The only question that remains to be answered is whether those who ordered the use of torture will be held to account. In his book, The Gamble, 2009, Thomas Ricks notes an emerging military consensus that envisions American troops in Iraq until the year 2015. And if that's the case, we're only halfway through America's costliest foreign policy blunder ever. Even more ominous, says Ricks, is the comment made to him last year by the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Ryan Crocker. What the world ultimately thinks about us, said Ryan Crocker, and what we think about ourselves is going to be determined much more by what happens from now on than what's happened up to now. And so concludes Thomas Ricks, the events for which the Iraq War will be remembered probably haven't even happened yet. For books this week, I review William Paul Young in collaboration with Wayne Jacobson and Brad Cummings. The title of the book, The Shack, Where Tragedy Confronts Eternity. Los Angeles, Windblown Media, 2007, 248 pages. Paul Young's prose might not compare favorably with John Updike. His theology might pale next to John Calvin. But he's a wise enough man never to make such a claim, and even more, not even to care. Paul Young has written a book that has deeply touched millions of readers. I read The Shack as much for the author's personal story as for his fictional novel. Paul Young, born 1955, epitomizes the accidental author. He had always written stories, songs, and poems for his family and friends, but he had never published anything. He never intended to publish anything, and least of all did he have any intention of publishing The Shack. He wrote the book in four months while riding a commuter train to work. As was his custom, he printed about 15 copies at the local Kinko's for friends and family. They, in turn, urged him to publish it. Rejected by 26 publishers, Young and two friends, both of whom were former pastors, borrowed $15,000 and created Windblown Media. They published their one and only title in May 2007 and promptly sold 11,000 copies out of their garage in four months. A year later, Hatchet Book Group USA, a large mainstream publisher, partnered with Windblown. 
According to Nielsen, The Shack was the top-selling fiction and audiobook in America in 2008. Today, there are 5.5 million copies in print, with plans for translations into 35 languages and, as you might imagine, rumbles about a movie version. On his website, Paul Young describes being born in Alberta, Canada, then living with his missionary parents in the highlands of Netherlands, New Guinea, among the Dani, a technologically Stone Age tribe, tribal people. Those people, he says, became my family and as the first white child and outsider who ever spoke their language. Boarding school began when he was six, and by the time he graduated, he had attended 13 schools. Young graduated from Warner Pacific College in Portland, Oregon, bounced around in a variety of odd jobs, and describes himself as, quote, a very simple guy. I have one wife, six kids, two daughters-in-law, and two grandkids on the way. I work as a general manager, janitor, and inside sales guy for a friend who owns a small manufacturer rep company in Milwaukee, Oregon. I live in a small rented house in Gresham, Oregon. Sexual abuse as a child, and then a brief affair as an adult, provoked a life crisis for Young at the age of 38. Fifteen years later, says Young, he has finally learned to trust the lavish love of God. The shack in Young's novel was the place of a horrible family tragedy. More broadly, it's a metaphor for your place of shame. Quote, the icon of your deepest pain, the place of your nightmares, or center of pain, end quote. In an interview, Young describes the shack as, quote, the place we build to hide all our crap. The novel begins with a mysterious note from God who invites Mac, the main character, back to the shack. And so the shack is also a place of healing, for God meets us in the middle of our mess. Indeed, the shack is located near a town called Joseph, which name, of course, evokes Genesis 50, verse 20. In the story of Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. What Young has written is really a doctrine of God as it relates to the problem of evil, only in story form. His literary devices have earned him the ire of many gatekeepers. The Trinitarian God who welcomes him back to the shack is El Uziah, a large, beaming African-American woman. A small, distinctly Asian woman named Sarayu who collects tears, and then a Middle Eastern man dressed like a laborer. Father, Son, and Spirit. Mac discovers that God is not like he thought. He's not the product of his projections or the neat formulas of religion. He's perfectly good. He intends to heal and not humiliate us. Mac learns to trust him fully and believe that he is near regardless of his emotions. Institutional religion, in particular, with its hierarchies and authoritarianism, 
along with politics and economics, are what Jung calls, quote, the trinity of terrors that ravages the earth, end quote. In this formulation, reconciling relationships are far more important than religious rules. And true to his story, in real life, Paul Young does not attend or belong to any religious organization. The Shack isn't great literature, but it's worth reading as a fresh take on what Christians claim is good news. The Shack, Where Tragedy Confronts Eternity, by William Paul Young. For film this week, I review In Bruges from the year 2008. Ray and Ken are two hitmen from London. Their boss, Harry, has ordered them to lay low in Bruges, Belgium. Bruges is the most well-preserved medieval town in Belgium, and its church bells, cobblestone streets, canals, and religious artwork all do their magic on Ken. Ken wonders about their vocation. Ray, on the other hand, hates Bruges, but one day in a medieval church his conscience awakes and he turns to Ken and asks, Do you believe all that stuff about guilt, sin, and the last judgment? That's a good question because the rest of this character study, full of black comedy and absurdist surreal elements, dwarfs, obese people, racism, has to do with both men seeking redemption. I don't want to be a dead man, Ray says, but there is a price to pay for deeds done, both personal and professional. Untangling your conscience to make a new start is not so easy, especially when the boss, Harry, reappears late in the film to insist upon living, quote, by principle, end quote, in a whole different way. Just one warning, this film is full of vulgar language and significant violence. In Bruges, from the year 2008. And finally, for the fourth Sunday in Lent, we've posted what is probably my favorite poem by Henry Vaughan, a Welsh poet and physician. Henry Vaughan lived from 1621 to 1695. The title of his poem is called The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers <clears throat> call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice. And here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear.
Henry Vaughn, The Revival. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 22nd, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.